Well, hello, Christ Chapel. Happy Palm Sunday to you. It's great to start Holy Week uh, with you and, and gathering for worship and around God's Word and to focus in on what He has for us uh, today and this week. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We're going to look at the first few verses there. And sometimes God's Word is it's hard. It's not just hard to understand, but it's, it's hard to live out. The practical implications of, of God's Word are sometimes hard. And uh, I've been around Christians long enough to, to know that the first few verses in Matthew 7 are hard for Christians. And I know the struggles of my own heart as well and the difficulties with that. A little while back, a few months ago, I was taking my 10-year-old son, Jake, to football. He loves football. And we were talking about his day, and, and I, I, I was just asking how it went. And he said, Dad, what does the word wrath mean? Apparently, they'd been studying the proverb, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath in school, and he wanted to know what that meant. So I said, well, wrath means, you know, anger, fury, getting all mad at someone. He was quiet, and he was looking out the window, and he mumbled, not to me, but to the Lord. He said, I won't be doing that verse tonight, Lord. It's football. <laughs> doing God's Word is sometimes hard. But here's the thing, it's not optional. It's not optional. You don't leave God's demands on the sidelines of a football field when you play football. You don't leave God's demands on the sideline of your life when it's hard, when it's inconvenient. It's, it's simply not optional. It's not seasonal to obey Jesus. If Jesus Christ is truly Lord of your life, then obedience isn't seasonal. Obedience isn't optional. Living out the implications of King Jesus' call in your life is proof that he is Lord of your life. And, and so Matthew 7 finds itself inside of perhaps the most well-known sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where King Jesus lays out how he wants his followers to live even when it's hard. He's correcting the misuse of God's demands, God's law, right? The, the, the religious elite at that time had opinions of God, what expects from man. And, and Jesus is correcting that. He says at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said that, but I say, here's how I want you to live. And so he presents us with lots of principles, principles of life, not just good ideas to chew over in your head as you're having your morning coffee or to think about when you gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning, but principles of life that are principles of action, to obey, to, to display, to live out as, a, as an advertisement to the world of what it means to be subject to King Jesus. And Jesus is clear and Jesus is practical and Jesus is extremely intrusive into your life, right? In the Sermon on the Mount so far, we've, we've heard him talk about your money. We've heard him talk about your, your worry. We've heard him talk about your lust. We've heard him talk about your, your vows, your desire for revenge. We've heard him talk about your prayer life. 
I mean, he really is thorough. Well, in the first few verses of Matthew 7, that thoroughness continues and gets even more intrusive when Jesus speaks to a very dangerous type of attitude that might reside in your life. A specific type of of attitude, a common flaw in in many Christians towards others. It's, It's a mindset that resides deep within us. It's a stance that is developed easily and we admit it toward other peoples. And Jesus says, it's gotta go. It's gotta go if I'm Lord of your life. So let me walk you through the first five verses there in Matthew chapter seven and see what the Lord has for us. And we start with a command. I mean, it's a command that really is a warning and you'll see that in a few moments. But the first verse there says, judge not. Judge not. Two words. Very, very simple, right? Uh, I can hear you say, yes, simple. Wrap it up, Murphy. There's a taco or a burger out there somewhere that I have to go and find. So let's just just wrap it up and go home. I, I get it. Judge not. And I would say, yes, let's go and watch the Masters Golf Tournament and, and enjoy a taco if this wasn't the most misunderstood and misquoted words of Jesus in the entire Bible. And it used to be that this was the favorite verse only of the most creative of sinners and pagan. But actually, it's skyrocketed in popularity amongst Christians. Judge not. They've become sort of a slogan. A a, a slogan that essentially is cast as a Jesus-endorsed way of you living your life whatever way you want to live your life. It's, it's, it's a way of, of essentially saying, back off, pal. Don't, don't discipline me. Don't instruct me because Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. It's so popular amongst Christians that I think we'll soon be selling T-shirts with Matthew 7, 1 on them. Perhaps even get tattoos. That's not a nice sticky on tattoos. I mean, we're Christians, Right? And I'm not suggesting to you entrepreneurs that you jump all over that idea. I'm exaggerating to make a point that it is, in the last 30 years, it's proven to be a very popular uh, slogan for Christians. Back off. Judge not. Well, that interpretation of Jesus is a misquoting of Jesus. It's simply rubbish. It's nonsense. That's not what Jesus is getting at. Not at all. That's just another version of twisting the Bible to suit what I want and get everybody to, to get off my back. Let me, let me explain to you what that word judge means because it's key in, in what Jesus is saying here. The word judge has a wide range of meanings. Uh, to judge, be it in English or even in the Greek here, it means to evaluate, to, to discern to decide between alternatives. And, and, and God gave us, it was God who gave us the, the faculty of, of, of critical thinking to, to be able to discern and to make good judgments and make good judgment calls in, in, in big issues and in minor issues. And we judge in this sense all the time. All the time, if, if I were to go to lunch 
today and, and go into some sort of burger joint and uh, I judge the menu. And eventually I, I zoom in on an item and it's say a burger and, and I judge the ingredients in the burger. I'll be saying, I'll have a new uh, nice little juicy burger, but please spare me the stinking pickles. <laughs> I want those pickens, pickles gone. In my, in my good judgment, it's a non-moral issue. It might be a moral issue for me, actually, pickles in a burger. Uh, I, I look at what's before me. I evaluate the situation. I discern that the, the good life for Murphy over lunch is a burger with no pickles. We judge all the time. To evaluate, to discern, to decide is not wrong. In fact, the scriptures encourage us. They, they, they teach us to be discerning. Particularly in areas of truth and falsehood. Particularly in areas of morality and lifestyle. If you take the whole book of Proverbs... The whole book of Proverbs is essentially a manual that's trying to instruct you and train you and teach you to judge between the way of the fool and the way of the wise. Read the prophets, all of them. There's a lot in there. The prophets are continually preaching that, that God abhors a certain type of lifestyle and the people who engage in them and warn us to avoid it and to avoid them and to turn to God, to judge between what is right and wrong and to choose the path of, of righteousness. It's all over the New Testament. But even in this chapter, Matthew 7, verse 6, you, you don't need to read it, it's just a few verses down. Jesus himself says, do not throw pearls to pigs, nor what is holy to dogs. Now, Jesus is not talking about little piggies and little doggies and little pearl necklaces. He's talking about people. He's talking about his followers discerning pig-type people, dog-type people, and making sure that you relate to them in an appropriate manner that's in keeping with his desires. A few verses on down from that in Matthew 7. We'll get to it at some point in this series. Jesus is very clear that he wants you to discern between the type of person who teaches falsehood and the type of person who teaches truth. And you'll be able to judge them or discern them through the fruit of their lives. Jesus is not against judging matters of truth and morality. Jesus isn't saying that we should just smile and wink at sin and send the world and ourselves off in some sort of sinful bliss with his blessing. It's not the slogan that Jesus has for our lives. That's nonsense. That's rubbish. To judge means to evaluate, to discern, to make good decisions according to God in light of the options that are available to you. But in this particular verse, it gets a little bit more specific. It's, it's, it's focusing in on an attitude. In this context, Jesus is talking about having a condemning or censorious attitude toward others, a hypercritical, a nitpicking, fault-finding, dooming outlook toward those people who are around you, fussing 
over everything they do, no matter how petty it is, deeming it all wrong simply because it doesn't measure up to you and because it gets under your skin and because it irritates you. It's that condemning attitude that Jesus is asking us not to embrace. Sometimes it's good to have a condemning attitude in certain contexts like in the law courts where, where a judgment has to be passed and a verdict has to be played out. But what Jesus is saying is that isn't the case in your life as you relate to the people around you. It's easy to develop this kind of carping attitude and, and to look for faults in others. I, I remember reading not too long ago about this neighbor of, of a pastor who was watching the pastor hammering nails into a fence in the back garden. And, and, and the pastor sort of looked at him and said, hey, Bob, uh, are you just learning some tips about good carpentry? Uh, and Bob didn't smile. He said, no, I'm just waiting to see what the preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. <laughs> this sort of fault-finding tendency is common. Just down the road from our house this past week, there's been three vultures perched quite high over the road. And as I've been chewing on this passage and watching them as I drive away from home and home, I'm looking, boy, that's, that's a good analogy. They're just waiting for a squirrel to dart across that road, be hit so that they can nitpick it to the bones. It's easy to, to do that. It's quite common. It's very hard to live with people like that. They're impossible to please. It's like the, the story of the young bachelor who kept, who kept bringing a, you know, prospective wife home to meet his mom. And mom could never be pleased. Mom picked every single one over the years and he was at his wit's end. So he said to a friend, I don't know what to do. Every one I date and potentially think of marrying, mom just destroys her. And so the friend said, well, why don't you pick someone like mom? And so he did. He brought home this beautiful young lady who, who looked like mom, who talked like mom, who acted like mom, who thought like mom, who dressed like mom. A few days later, his friend asked him, well, how did it go? And he said, it went great. Mom loved her. Dad can't stand her. <laughs> it's so common and it's so hard to live with and here's the thing, Jesus won't have it in his followers. Jesus won't have it in his followers. It, it destroys relationships. It sours marriages. It ruins churches. Did you know that in the last year, 40% of pastors have considered leaving the pastorate and entering Secular employment, because Christians are so hard to please. We're hard to please. We're hard to pastor. This isn't a sort of a, a, a pastor pity party. That's the facts. That's the truth. 
We're all somewhat guilty of it. Being hypercritical has been called by some the Christian's favorite indoor sport. But boy, that does capture it. We're professionals at it. A pastor of yesteryear, J. Vernon McGee, still on the radio, you know, he had a big impact in a previous generation. He says it well. He says the only exercise that some Christians get is jumping to conclusions and running down other people. Very well said. I know some of you, and me included, don't see ourselves as unfairly or illegitimately nitpicky. But if his chewing at lunchtime is always too loud for you and gets under your skin, or if his uh, putting the spoons into where the forks live in the drawer, or if every time he leaves the kitchen, it seems like he leaves the cupboard doors slightly open or the drawers slightly open, then you might be a hypercritical, nitpicky person. And if her driving really irritates you, and if you think that she stops too late and too suddenly when she gets to the stop sign, and she always takes too long to get ready when you're going out, then you might be a hypercritical people nitpicker. If here at church the young never dress right, if the pastor's always too long or too boring, or doesn't say things the way you want them said to whoever's sitting beside you, or if the music's too loud or too old-fashioned and the lights are too bright or too dim or the coffee's too weak out in the fire, then you might be a hypercritical people nitpicker. I'm one. I've been accused rightfully of being a nitpicker. But I don't want to be the only person convicted this week by this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to get you <laughs> to lean into the person beside you and say this, warning, I may be a people nitpicker. Go ahead and do it. Warning, I might be a people nitpicker. Yeah. Now, now don't get me wrong, uh, there is appropriate nitpicking. <laughs> there is appropriate nitpicking. Uh, you want a nitpicky financial advisor handling your wealth, your money. You want a nitpicky, you know, hairdresser cutting and dyeing your hair. You want a nitpicky maintenance crew checking the engine on your next flight. You want a nitpicky surgeon who's going to do surgery on you tomorrow morning. Not all nitpickiness is inappropriate, but Jesus does not want followers with a condemning, hypercritical, nitpicky attitude toward everybody around them. It's poisonous to relationships and to marriages and to family members and to churches and to God's purposes in the world that you be salt that does not lose its saltiness, Sermon on the Mount, that you be light that's not hidden but that is seen and visible in a very dark world. So we start with a warning and the warning is simply this, don't nitpick. Pick people. 
Don't nitpick people. Don't be so hard. Don't be so hypercritical on others with a holier-than-thou type of attitude toward them. Don't nitpick people. Now, the reason it's a warning, not just a command, is because Jesus follows it up with two reasons, two whys. Why we're not to nitpick people. The first reason is that nitpicking is dangerous to you. Nitpicking is dangerous to you. Look at the rest of verse one and on into verse two. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So certainly on one level, what this means is that you reap in human relationships what you sow. This is proverbial language here. The, the measure you use will be measured to use sort of general wisdom. It's, it's sort of like in our day, the proverb, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. You can't be unfair and nitpicky and, and, and hasty in your conclusions about other people and, and be surprised if that doesn't come right back at you. Suspicion like that breeds suspicion of those around you, of you. Bishop Potter was a very well-known bishop in the 19th century, in the 1800s. A bishop of New York, a very well-liked man, and, and he tells a personal story. And I, I love that he tells it because it, it demonstrates the point at hand here, but it also exposes his vulnerability and his willingness to accept, I err on this myself. It's a tendency in, in my own heart. He talks about being on a ship heading towards Europe. And back then, you know, you couldn't catch a flight. They hadn't invented planes. And so you had to go on long boat trips. And so he was on this uh, ship to, to Europe. And he went down into his cabin. And he realized that he'd be sharing the cabin with someone else. Uh, he had a new roommate, as it were. And he, and, and he looked at the guy and he, and he gave him sort of the, the, the stink eye, right? The, the eye of disapproval. He, he looked up at him top to bottom and then he left for a while, came back, gathered some stuff and went up to the front desk. And he said at the front desk, the guy who was there, I'd like to leave these valuables in the ship safe because... I've been down in my cabin and I, I've realized that I'm rooming with a man of, of questionable trust. And the man at the front desk, the purser as it were, he, he remarked that that wouldn't be a problem. In fact, the bishop's new roommate had just been up too with his personal belongings with the same concern. <laughs> I love that. You, you, you treat people in, in a certain way. Don't be surprised if they're then suspicious of you. If they nitpick back, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Nitpicking is dangerous to you. People will hypercritically assess you too. But that's just on one level. The, the main level at which Jesus is casting this warning brings God into the equation. The actual agent of the judging back here in this context is God himself. God might nitpick back. God sees clearly. God sees accurately. 
And when God stands in a holier than thou position before you, he's right to do so. And that's dangerous to you. What Jesus is teaching here is in keeping with what the scriptures open up elsewhere. Uh, I think the Apostle Paul develops it in 1 and 2 Corinthians, but he says it really well in one verse, Romans 14.10. You don't need to go there. Let me read it to you. Romans 14.10, I believe, is Paul's version of Jesus' seven, Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Paul says this, you then, to believers, you then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. God is the one who will judge back, right back at you if you judge illegitimately. And this is a teaching in the scriptures that believers one day will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as judge of their lives. That, that, that awaits you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that judgment is not gonna be a judgment to condemn you to eternal life without him. That's what we call the great white throne judgment. And that's reserved for those who are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that should scare the socks off you. But believers in the Lord Jesus Christ won't face that judgment, but we will face a judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can celebrate Palm Sunday and can enter into Holy Week knowing that what is going to be celebrated this Friday is the forgiveness of sin because God's judgment came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, he takes on God's judgment that should be cast upon your life. And of course, we're gonna celebrate next Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, that God has been satisfied with the payment that Christ made for your sin. So you're not gonna face a condemning, eternally condemning judgment of God, but you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day to render account for your life as a believer. And how you live here shows up in heaven. Your actions, your reactions, your obedience, your, your, your giving, your service, your attitude will show up. And you do not want God to be scrutinizing your life with that type of nitpicky precision. You want him to look at your life with overwhelming patience an overwhelming grace, an overwhelming mercy, not through the lens of a nitpicky, hypercritical one, because God could do that, and when he did that, he would be completely accurate. So don't nitpick people, number one, because nitpicking is dangerous to you. God will correctly nitpick your wrongful nitpickiness if you nitpick other people. Well, that's a tongue twister. Don't ask me to repeat that. But number two, because nitpicking is two-faced. Nitpicking is not just dangerous to you. It's also two-faced. It's hypocritical. To be hypercritical is to be hypocritical. Look at verses three, uh, uh, all the way through to the beginning of verse five, where, where Jesus presents another parable. Jesus loves parables. This is the parable of the speck and the log. 
It comes right out of what you'd expect from someone who spent a long, a lot of time in a carpenter's workshop working with wood. Look at what he says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Now here's the point. At the beginning of verse five, he just comes right out with it. You hypocrite. It's hypocritical. You're a hypocrite if that's the way you function. This is intentionally humorous. This is intentionally humorous because hypocrisy is simply ridiculous. I, I remember the story, I think it was my dad told me about uh, a small town baker, uh, let's call him Baker Bob, and Baker Bob took the small town farmer to court, Farmer Fred, we'll call him Farmer Fred. So Baker Bob took Farmer Fred to court for theft. Apparently, Farmer Fred had been sen- selling him a pound of butter but it wasn't rightly weighed. It was less than a pound that he kept giving to to Baker Bob. So Baker Bob took him to court and wanted him done for theft. And so the the judge eventually addressed Farmer Fred and asked him to explain himself. And Farmer Fred said, well, sir, Baker Bob started buying a pound of my butter. And so I decided that I would use as a measurement of my pound of butter the pound loaf of bread that he's been selling to us for many, many years. If the scales are off, they're off because of him. Baker Bob wanted Farmer Fred done for the very thing he was guilty of causing. It's hypocritical being blind to your own flaws and yet sitting in a holier-than-thou, condemnatory, censorious attitude toward other people is just two-faced. And Jesus won't have it. Jesus' harshest and strongest words in the New Testament are against hypocrites. They disgust him. Hypocrisy uh, it comes out of the world of theater. Uh, to be a hypocrite was to be an actor, a pretender. They used to have to, when acting, wear masks. It's quite ironic. Like, I'm not going to open up that conversation. Should we be wearing masks? And is mask wearing hypocritical? That's, we're not going political here at all. That's what it was back then. You wore a mask to represent different characters in the drama. And so it becomes a natural analogy for human beings who are pretending to be what they're not, to be a hypocrite. And Jesus won't have it. So don't nitpick people because number one, it's dangerous to you and number two, because it's two-faced. It's two-faced. You don't see accurately. So how can you nitpick others so arrogantly? To live a hypercritical or to express a hypercritical attitude is simply hypocritical. Now, now Jesus doesn't end just with a warning that's reasoned out. He provides a better way forward by way of application. The rest of verse five really provides us with, with a healthy way forward, with a healthy way to restore those who do have flaws, perhaps even sinful flaws, but without being hypercritical and without being hypocritical. Look at the end of verse five. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus wants you to help others 
Jesus wants you to help others who have flaws, even perhaps moral flaws. God hates sin. God abhors sin, sin in your life, sin in other people's lives, and sin should upset you. Sin should unsettle you, but you can't help in a healthy manner if you have an unhealthy attitude. If there's a log, and remember a log here means unfair nitpickiness of other people. If there's a log in your eye, you can't help unless you get help first. So the better way is to remove the flaw, the log, the nitpickiness from your own eye first and then to help restore others, which is what God wants to do through you and other people's lives. Well, how do you do that? Well, it certainly begins with self-examination, self-inspection, recognizing that you may be an unfair people nitpicker, that you do not like it when someone puts spoons in the fork section of the cutlery drawer. But you've all recognized that already because your neighbor is my witness to that. You confessed that you were a a people nitpicker. So we've started along the better way pathway. It also means that that removing the flaw uh, requires genuine repentance and a real desire for change. Not just recognizing that you may have a predisposition toward that attitude, but on a daily basis to examine your life and to come clean before God and confess your sins, accepting that that is in you and that that is unacceptable for Jesus' followers, asking the Holy Spirit to get the tweezers out, for some of you perhaps to get the chainsaw out, the big log and to do a work in your life, and he will do so, and he will do so gently and carefully because it's his will that that not reside in you. It also means that you've got to commit to biting your lip when that urge to to nitpick unfairly surges up inside of you. Perhaps as you go out to lunch and think about your morning and the service, or when she grabs the keys and says, I'm going to drive home. Or when he walks past the dishwasher with his dirty dishes and puts them in the sink, not into the dishwasher. You have to resist the urge to nitpick unfairly, to recognize the flaws in you, to repent before the Lord on a daily basis. And then you become able and useful in the restoration of others who have flaws because you'll be able to see clearly. You know what self-examination and self-inspection on a daily basis before God does to you? It makes you a compassionate person because you're receiving God's compassion and then it bleeds out of you towards other people. You're able to help others in the restoration process because you've been restored compassionately by the Holy Spirit. My youngest came back from the zoo the other day. And have you ever had an eyelash in your eye or a little bit of sand? It's, it, it's, it's debilitating. It's horrible. Or a little splinter in your finger. Like, I mean, it's just, it's horrible. Well, he came back from the zoo and somehow he'd got a tiny little splinter in his finger. Now, it wasn't the size of an ant. It was the size of a baby ant. It was tiny. 
And the teacher had wrapped it up like he'd just come back from World War I. It was, it was ridiculous. But, but if you've ever had a splinter in your finger, you know it's sore and it's annoying. The size of it is disproportionate to the pain and the discomfort it causes. And, and I've had that, so I, I was able to help him take out the baby ant from his finger and stare into his little tear, teary eyes. You know the joy that it brought to me to be able to help him? And you know how I was able to do it? Because I was able to do so gently and carefully and compassionately because I've had that happen in my life. Remove your own hypercritical, hypocritical flaw first and you'll be able uh, to restore others uh, as God will lead you. Friends, I, I close with this. The other day I saw a guy wearing a t-shirt that said, wear Texas well. And I thought, I like that. I'm an adopted Texan. I think I know what that means. And what it was proclaiming is that you need to represent the values of Texas well. The Sermon on the Mount is essentially a big, massive call for followers of Jesus Christ to wear Jesus Christ well. To not leave him in the sidelines when it gets hard to obey his commands. To not think that obedience to God is seasonal, Sunday, Sunday, but not the rest of the week. It's hard. But if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, then unfair people nitpickiness must go. It has to go. So lean over to your neighbor again and tell him good news. I'm away home to stop being a people nitpicker. And then go home and do that. And your relationships will flourish. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and that it is so practically helpful to our relationships with one another and how we represent you in the world. And we ask that you would help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to welcome his work with tweezers or chainsaws in our lives this week so that we exit uh, Resurrection Sunday keen to represent you in the world as salt that does not lose its saltiness, as lights that aren't hidden in this dark world. We love you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we come and pray. Amen.